Welcome to the Greenhouse Podcast, hiring for what's next. In each episode, we'll meet people at the forefront of hiring. In this series, we'll talk about hiring maturity, which is how companies move through different stages as they get better at hiring. Greenhouse president and co-founder John Strauss sits down with talent leaders to discuss their hiring maturity journeys. We'll hear how they did it and what they're focusing on now to be ready to hire for what's next for their companies. They'll share advice to help your team get better at hiring. And now, let's pass it over to John. Hi there, welcome to the podcast. My name is John Strauss, I'm the president of Greenhouse Software. Today's guest is Neil Casey from ThoughtWorks. I'm really excited to jump in and hear about their journey. Neil, thanks for so much for being on the podcast. We're really excited to talk to you today. No worries, John. No worries. Uh, thank you very much for the invite. Um, I, like probably many of the listeners, uh, I'm currently working from home at the moment because of the current circumstances. Um, my children have gone back to school, unlike I know a lot of listeners, but um, they are due back at some point in the future. So if we do hear any noise, screaming, growling or barking, it will be the children. So just thought I'd give you a bit of a warning in advance. We'll look forward to that. So, Neil, why don't you start with a, a small introduction? I am uh, the global head of sourcing and strategic hiring at ThoughtWorks, um, based in the UK. Great. Thanks for coming on. And for anybody who's not familiar, um, tell them what, it, what is ThoughtWorks? Yeah, good question. Um, so, ThoughtWorks, I suppose, the best description of the company could be that we are a global software delivery consulting firm. So, we work around the world. We're around 8,000 people and we are probably best known for being one of the original pioneers of software delivery around Agile um, and I suppose pioneers around things like DevOps and microservice architecture. But I suppose primarily we are a company that helps solve some of our clients more difficult technical challenges and I suppose nowadays help them move into the world of digitization and, and resilience against the challenges that we're seeing in the market. Yeah, yeah. But I was, I was excited to have you guys on. I've always thought of you as one of the most thoughtful companies who are really intentional and in kind of everything you do from, and I think it comes out of like how you build software, but it also comes into how you guys do recruiting. So I thought you'd be a perfect guest for this. Oh, thank you. Very much appreciated. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, and then t- and t- tell us your journey. How did you get to recruiting leadership? Ah, good question. So, um, like all recruiters, I, I, as a child, I, I obviously wanted to be a recruiter and um, <laughs> naturally grew up as uh, looking at recruiting uh, role models. But no, I think um, I, uh, I came out of university and, and I actually finished university on the Friday and started in a recruiting job within an agency the next Monday. Um, I was straight in and I've always liked, I suppose, working with people and speaking to people and influencing and all of those things. So recruitment came I suppose, right into that uh, crosshair of the things I enjoy doing. So spent a number of years in recruiting agency. And then I um, I spent a lot of time recruiting as it was back in, I'm giving my age away a little bit, but in the early 2000s around the Oracle technology stacks and the, the Oracle developer world and all of those things. Um, and I ended up moving to Oracle. So Oracle was my first in-house corporate job. So I spent a number of years there working um, in various business units um, and it really gave me a, a strong understanding of that end-to-end delivery life cycle. I think when you're an agency you, you only really get the CV supply aspect of the job. You don't necessarily see where the vacancies come from, the business context and all of the other things that 
come alongside that full end-to-end delivery piece and, and the, the recruitment and the talent acquisition strategy. So Oracle really built that in place for me. I then spent a number of years and probably carved more of my business understanding and business leadership skills uh, within the RPO industry sector. So working as a I suppose more of a commercially minded talent acquisition for, um, specialism um, and looking at delivery models, the difference between RPO and MSP and scalability, maintainability and, and all the, looking at recruitment as a real value add and the, and the commercial aspect of what um, value recruitment could bring to a business. So yeah, RPO has really sort of carved my leadership career path um, and I, I worked in primarily the technical space and consulting space and then um, having worked back in the in-house world, I found myself at ThoughtWorks just under five years ago, um, working in the UK to help lead the uh, talent acquisition function there as a recruiter and then uh, moving on to the global leadership team here at ThoughtWorks in, in more recent times over the last two years. Neat. It's an interesting path. I think it's so common that I see people go from, you know, you start an agency world and at some point you jump over to corporate. But at some point, you have to make that leap from being like an individual recruiter to a leader. And a lot of the things that make you a great leader are quite different than the things that make you a great recruiter. And it sounds like you learned a lot of that in the RPO world, where you're learning about the um, the bigger picture than just filling each role. Yeah, I think I think, as you mentioned, I think you can be as a recruiter, you can be quite it's easy to become quite blinkered. And I think the ironic thing is if you look at the, the better recruiters out there and no doubt whoever's listening will hopefully identify with this is that they do have the ability to look at the bigger picture because when they're building business cases for offers, when they're looking at the, the way that they're positioning their organization, when they're, when they're selling and, and hiring, they've got the ability to bring those flavors of the wider organization and the larger strategy and the growth strategy and all of these things into their conversational pieces and their business cases in order to help influence the direction they they need to go in. Um, So good recruiters are able to do that. And the ones that potentially go on to do larger roles tend to have that natural ability. But I think what the difference we we tend to see and uh, what I've seen is that, as you mentioned, the ability to not only identify how good recruitment's done on an individual level, like for yourself as a recruiter, but then being able to scale that across a, a whole delivery model and identify best practice and how do you, and I know we'll go into things like data and all of those things, um, but the ability to understand trends, understand what good looks like, move away from the anecdotal reasons as why recruitment does and doesn't work and, and really distill down to the to the core truth of, of good practice, which is normally um, data-driven and, and activity level, um, I suppose, direction that recruiters follow and how as a leader you can help replicate that most effectively amongst the team really yeah that's exactly it right is, is like take all of that great stuff you learned as an individual recruiter but then you have to take kind of a system thinking approach and figure out what's the actual underlying pattern here and how am i going to replicate this across a big function that isn't dependent on each person discovering it all for themselves right yeah absolutely and i think it, it's it, again recruiters are moving not every recruiter works higher to hire, but it's not just about how do we make a hire. It's about how do we help a, an entire organizational grow in its strategical, in a strategical direction. And it might be thinking six months, 12 months, 18 months ahead of the offerings that the business are going to be looking for. How does that build into the talent acquisition strategy? There's probably, depending on which company you're in, there could be four or five different columns of, of strategic work that you're looking at to help build 
the longer term objective of the organization while trying to maintain that strong delivery engine of best practice from the recruiter level as well. So yeah, there's different stratas of, of, of activity and thinking going on at any one time. Well, I, th- I think you just pretty much described the conceit of this podcast. <laughs> just, you know, when we think about it, we talked about it as a, high, as a maturity curve, right? Is that you're trying to work, get a company up this curve and there's many different pieces of it, right? It might be from the candidate experience you're creating to the diversity sourcing practice you're creating to how you're doing interviewing and decision-making. Um, and you have to build the, all those foundations that are going to benefit you months from now while you're still making today's hires, you're still dealing with today's fires, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the one thing that we don't cover enough as well, because what, you, what you've covered there, John, is exactly right. There's all of, and I know ironically, um, and for anyone who hasn't sort of sat down with a, a representative of a greenhouse, and I know your own maturity model around the chaotic and the, um, is, it, is it chaotic, inconsistent, systematic and strategic in terms of your maturity model that you look at your clients with, which I think is absolutely fantastic. And it's, I'm definitely going to steal it. I don't mind telling you that, but, Um, The one thing that we tend to overlook, because it's very easy to go into strategic planning and strategic thinking and strategic delivery, but the culture of the organization and specifically the talent acquisition organization is probably one of the key facets, because I think one of the key, I think one of the the famous business phrases is that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I think if you haven't got the right culture within the function, and that can be down to the culture of the recruiters being activity focused and actually wanting to being hungry to make hires and being driven. Um, and I think all of those things can, can come into a major part because you can create the, the most well-designed strategy and you can create the best practices, but if they're not executed manually on the ground with the right people using the right culture and the right approach with the right attitudes and motivations, then nothing else really plugs in well and nothing else will be, will be executed at the end really. So. I, I love that you said that. It's actually, that was one of the interviews I did that, that kind of kicked off this whole podcast was with uh, Sean Garrity at TalkDesk. And that was what she talked about. And it, and it just resonated so hard was that um, the thing that you really notice about companies at the top of the curve is their culture is different. There's like different social norms, right? And so the idea that a hiring manager would kind of blow off a recruiter and say, I don't have time to do like a kickoff meeting and tell you what we're looking for. Like, no, that's absolutely unacceptable. Um, the idea that you would show up to a huddle, you know, we're going to make a decision about a candidate and you didn't fill out a scorecard. Like everyone's going to glare at you and be like, what are you doing? Why are you wasting our time? And it's not the recruiters doing it. It's everyone. And when you create that culture, where we're like, we're all in this together. We're all accountable to each other. It feels so different. And that's actually what it's like to be at the top of the curve. Um, Whereas people, I think, think it's it's just about like, oh, you have good reports or you have good this. And it's like, no, it's actually culture is kind of a lot of it. And I think you're, you're absolutely right. And I recognize a lot of the things you've said there from, from obviously different parts of my career when I look at the different teams and different businesses I've worked in. But I think one of the big factors we've, we've undertaken at ThoughtWorks is, and this goes towards the, not only the capability of the function, but also the individuals involved in every role is that we went through a what we classed as a, a capability uplift um, program where we looked at moving people away from being transactional recruiters, if you will, to being what we classed as talent advisory specialists. So they they have a seat at the table. They are able to influence. They are able to have a level of gravitas and credibility with the stakeholders. But fundamentally, it moved recruitment from being the function which was probably service to the business and 
seen as like a, a transactional support to the business. And if, you're, if I'm completely honest, the whipping sort of function for the reason the business couldn't grow, the reason that the business couldn't do this, it's always because recruitment can't do what they need to do or they can't hit their targets. And over the last four years, we've completely transformed that to being, I suppose, recruitment being seen as the the poster child of, of what best operational delivery looks like, being data-driven, being strategic, being um, ahead of the business curve as to being advisory to the business um, in terms of what the business is planning. And again, what it has done, and it's not an intentional piece, but we've had to then partner more strongly with other um, functions that are now they don't have the camouflage of being able to blame recruitment. So they have to they get their own uh, business orgs matured in a way that they're going to be able to keep up with us. And, and that's been good because we can take them on a journey and we can help them learn from the from the change curves that we've gone through to help speed up that maturity for them as well. So, yeah, from, from I never want to say a sort of ugly child to poster child, but because um, every child's beautiful, every child is beautiful. Um, but you know what I mean in terms of making that transformational change. And whether you call it maturity model to whatever it is, but being a truly trusted strategic partner of the business. Um, and and, I and we've done hundreds of, I mean, we've taken, we've had hundreds of companies now take that assessment, like for the, we take an assessment quiz for the maturity model. And I would say the great majority, overwhelming majority is more closer to where you started than where you are today. So like, how did you do that? Because yeah. <laughs> like, that, yeah. that's sort of the $64,000 question for everybody. It's like, how do you go from being entirely reactionary, blamed for everything, transactional, to like, no, no, we changed the relationships. We're now partners. Yeah. You don't blame us for stuff, right? Yeah, I, it's a good question. And I think there's, I'd love to say that it's entirely, it's entirely within the, the, sort of remit of the recruiting function to deliver that. But I think it's a mixture of all things because there's one thing recruiting evolving, but there's also a lot of external business or internal business leaders that also have to mature their own view of what recruitment is as well, because you could have the most mature recruitment function in the world if the, if the business leaders are not in a position to take advantage of it. So I think there's a, there's a multitude of different factors, but to give you some context from where we started from, and hopefully the listeners can, can, um, it will benefit the listeners as well. But when I first joined ThoughtWorks, maybe four, five years ago nearly, um, there was two factors at play. There was an incredibly high perceived bar. Now, everyone will probably listen and say, well, we've all got, we all look for the best people. We all sort of have this, we want the best talent in the market. Um, but for context around that, um, I think in the five years prior to me joining, and I'll not, and hopefully this is an indicator of me joining and lowering the bar, but we were voted, uh, I think it was the hardest company in the world to get hired by by Forbes magazine and uh, Glassdoor. Um, yeah, you guys are legendary, yes. Yeah, so in that regard, it was a, it, but it, this is where I suppose the, the culture of the business started to shift because internally that was seen as a bit of a badge of honor. It was like, it's harder to get into the, it's harder to get into ThoughtWorks than it is the Navy SEALs. Um, or the SAS if you're in the UK. Um, and it, for me, what that really told me was, right, let me have a look at the metrics because that doesn't sound right. Um, if we're talking to the right people more often, the conversion rates should be much better than that. Um, and that's where I started my sort of journey into data with ThoughtWorks. And what I found was that while we were and, uh, at the time, and, and are very much still are and have been for the last 25 years, but in our external offerings to our clients where we build software, we do 
transformational advisory sort of top level consulting services, we are extremely polished. We were extremely mature and we helped some of the most respected organizations to, to go that extra step further. So the external side of what we did was always very well um, engineered and delivered. However, when we looked internally, we probably hadn't taken a lot of our own lessons that we, we, we speak to others. So the operations functions, the especially recruiting was very um, under mature. So we had this perceived level of grandeur, uh, which don't get me wrong, we hired some, we ha- and we hire some amazing people, and and the quality of what we do, in an external sense, means that we have to hire really good people because they then have to go and be the specialist to our clients. Um, but the level of grandeur probably perceived was was not helping us. So it was about re-educating the business to understand the growth of the organisation didn't necessarily didn't mean down sort of lowering the bar or downgrading the benchmark it was about actually how do we identify what we truly look for and then go ahead and actually identify where we get those more frequently so um, the first thing we did was to create a full program of work around um, standardization of the attributes that we look for um, within our key roles so whether it's a senior developer a product person a QA there was a and I call it a fairy tale of thought works but it was a fairy tale of thought works that doesn't matter where you're hired in the world. Everyone does the same process. It was a process that we created. It was created by thought workers to find other thought workers, and it's legendary. So that was what it was like the sacred cow of, of, of um, one of our sacred cows of thought works. What we found out quite quickly was, actually, if you went around the world, a lot of our regions were doing different things, little tweaks here and there. There was very different pro- uh, projects and different processes going on. And the fundamental problem we found was that, actually, if you were a candidate and you came in on Monday, you could do an interview and you could get no. You could come in on a Tuesday with a different interview panel and you might get yes. Um, and that inconsistency, especially region to region, was a, was a major area of opportunity. And coupled with the fact that actually every single thought worker has an opinion on everything. If you go into a room with three of us, you'll probably get five different opinions. But that was big. Yeah, exactly. And I think if you were to distill that into decision-making about candidates and especially about what we look for in candidates, just hiring a senior developer meant that everyone had a different view of what that really looked like. What were the desirable skills? What were the essential skills? Well, I worked on a project where you needed this, and that means we should hire people who have got that, where someone else might not have that view. So we created working groups uh, that had global ownership. They created the specific attributes that we needed for every single job. And then we were able to then Um, segment those attributes into specific interview steps at each stage of the process so the interviewers knew what they were targeting knew what they were looking for and there was a global agreement as to if someone had those attributes as a baseline then we should be moving forward to offer so that was one of the biggest steps that we were able to make really creating evidence-based attributes for each of the roles standardizing the approach to what we look for we allowed for flexibility in the process because theoretically if you're looking for the right attributes, it doesn't matter how you go about assessing those as long as they are targeted. Um, we've started to refine that a little bit because of scalability and other challenges such as interviewer availability and obviously the, the problem everyone's having now with, with globalization and, and also um, digitization because people can't go in offices. Um, so we're having to, to reevaluate the best way of doing that effectively and also accessing interviewer pools around the world. So if someone in Ecuador can do interviews with Spain or vice versa or um, just accessing the, the thought workers we have globally. So we're looking at ways of doing that now, but that standardization was really key. Um, so moving away from anecdotal reasons, um, a culture of elitism, I suppose you would say, and, and, and more inclusive approaches, 
um, but also standardizing the the attributes and the approach that we took to to identifying talent. Interesting. I mean, I think that's that's the journey that a lot of folks have to go through. Can I ask? Was there a um a diversity and inclusion either motivation for that or or different results that you got? Because I know you guys um, have always have been yeah, kind of forward thinking on that for a long time. It's a good question, and the answer is yes. But you could probably ask many of the questions that we have related to talent acquisition, and the answer would be yes. We have a diversity and inclusion lens to it because for the last 27 years and again for people who are not familiar with ThoughtWorks we were set up by a guy called uh, Roy Singham um, or Neville Roy Singham as, as he's known on if you were to google him. Um, Roy is and always has been a very vocal political player uh, when it comes to things like social impact, how do we um, how do we impact the communities around us, how do we use technology to the betterment of society. So when he set up ThoughtWorks that that view of how technology should impact the world around us is, was was baked into the DNA, and it forms part of um, every lens or every decision that we make as an organisation with the clients who we work with, and predominantly industry sectors we maybe don't work with, um, where we don't feel alignment. The the culture that we've built internally for for the ability to have a say and 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 be free of have a freedom of of um, debate at ThoughtWorks. But importantly, and I suppose when it comes to talent acquisition, how do we identify people who are open-minded? They can see the world through others' eyes and they can, I suppose, put themselves in the um, the, the the view of the oppressed and, and, and be open to other people's views around that. And I think that's one of the biggest factors around identifying, I suppose, and I hate to use the word culture fit because it's not correct, but culture ads, they, they can see a journey um, a thought works that they maybe want to take part in and we can we can see um, opportunities for us to add value to that individual's journey coming through the business as well so that's always been a big part of us and it's part of our interview steps that we take in place um, again region to region that changed and uh, evolved because some of our more mature regions had gone through a, a maturity of how to identify that some of our newer regions or less mature regions were still in the more embryonic view of what that meant to, to be a thought worker um, but we're now seeing a more standardized approach to identifying um, opportunities for bringing people into our culture journey neat yeah no i think as we started down our path of like how do we build product features to support companies who are working on diversity and inclusion i've talked to a lot of companies who were just in the last few years saying geez how can we do better and now there's a lot of people just in the last few months who are saying "Ooh, we got to do better and you all, you all was like, no, no, we've been doing this for 25 years. And it was a very different and a more mature perspective that I always found you guys to be um, really neat to talk to. Because it's like, this is what it looks like if you thought about it for 20 years and not 20 minutes. And and just to caveat all of that, because I know I've, I've mentioned, as I say, we, we've been going at this for 25 years. Um, we I think, and again, it's not something we publicize as, as much. I think we should. I think there's no reason why we shouldn't be more proactive around talking about these things and, and promoting the, the success we've had because it, it, it inspires others to do more which is great but um i think we've been voted the anita borg awards which are primarily obviously a north america based awards uh, i think we've been voted um best women in the best company in the world for women in technology um for our size of organization for about five years now um and i think the last time we won it our cto rebecca dr rebecca parsons um her big speech was all about actually we're nowhere near finished we're doing we're doing what we've done but we're nowhere near finished. And if you look at diversity um, and particularly inclusion, because I think inclusion is the absolute imperative. That's the missing piece for a lot of people's strategy around this. It's the inclusion piece. Um, 
there's so many cross cross I suppose sex, sectional parts of diversity, whether it's ethnicity and gender, whether it's disability and ethnicity, whether it's sexuality and um, disability, all of these different things. What does it mean to be a, wo- a woman in tech? What does it mean to be a woman of color in tech? What does it mean to be a, a mother um, with a disability in technology? How do we incorporate all of those factors to create an inclusive environment? And the answer most of the time is we don't know. Um, and the only way we can find that out is to, to be incredibly open to our community within the business and to, to seek guidance and, and advice from the from the bit from our from our employees and thought workers to as to how we can best serve people and what do people need to feel that they're here and they can be their whole selves at work and they, they feel in, included as as the, the the core of our business rather than necessarily as a as a representative of diverse group if that makes sense well i'm looking forward to expanding on that in just a moment but first let's take a quick break want to find out how effective your company is at hiring then you're ready to take the Greenhouse Hiring Maturity Assessment at greenhouse.io HMA. After you take the assessment, we'll send you specific ideas and strategies to help you take your company to the next level of hiring. Take the free five-minute assessment today at greenhouse.io HMA. You want to hire the best people, but do you know what a great candidate looks like? Criteria's comprehensive suite of assessments gives you a multidimensional view of each candidate that you could never see from a resume alone. Criteria's assessments are rigorously validated to measure qualities that are critical to success today, such as problem solving, adaptability, emotional intelligence, and more. Plus, Criteria's hands-on team is right there with you to help you build a scalable, repeatable, and objective assessment process that drives better results for your business, like higher performance, long-term retention, and a stronger team. Learn more at CriteriaCorp.com. Okay. Let's jump back into the conversation. I did want to loop back to one thing you said earlier, because I think it resonates with a lot of people, is the transformation that you guys have done and where you've gotten to and this maturation. An important thing you said was, it's not just about what happens within the recruiting team. It's also very much in partnership with these business leaders, and they have to buy in as well. And I think at most companies, I talk to most recruiters, and they say, well... You know, this one team over here is like not bought in. They're going to do their own thing. They treat us like garbage. Um, what do you do? <laughs> and so I guess the question is, were there, um, were there folks who are great partners to you that you're like, this is what I'm going to start with? Were there folks who are really resistant? And how did you eventually get them to come over? Um, were there any, any strategies there? Yeah, I think, um, and, and again, we had we had all of that. And I would argue that in pockets of the business, we still do have visibility of some of that. But um, the biggest guidance I could give everyone is to try and identify the currency of the team, the individuals, the business unit that you're working with. And what I mean by that is what is it that they use to make decisions and what influences them? Um, a good example of that would be if you're working with senior leadership and they are really looking at the commercial offering of the business how do they operate from a PL level what's the revenue how do we identify opportunities for cost savings more importantly how do we identify opportunities for cost adding to the business and revenue generation um how does thought how does as a talent acquisition function how are you able to talk in those terms position your delivery in those terms um a prime example would be when i'm look when we were looking at trying to drive more um, budget for certain areas of our business or to identify the cost of not making a hire because the business team weren't aligned. Um, luckily, we're in consulting and I can draw a direct line 
between the hiring of a senior developer or a QA or whatever it is and the generation of revenue because they will be billed out on client side. I know their average billable day rate. I know their average day utilization over a period of 12 months. So if, for instance, and I'll, I'll just make up, I won't call any particular areas out, but say, for instance, we have a, um, a need to hire a certain type of skill set and the team that are responsible for that from a business perspective are being incredibly reluctant to hire or make decisions or follow process or commit the time and effort that's required. I can call out the specific revenue that's been lost due to the time it's taken to hire. And I can bring it to their attention. I can talk to the senior leaders to make sure that we've got the right visibility of the the loss of opportunity that we're seeing because of the lack of um, progress we're making from a recruitment perspective. And that can, that can really cut through. That can really sort of, like sort of really focus people's attention it can really focus the desires and it can also get the the impetus to to drive things forward Um, and it prioritizes because if it isn't a priority for them you can't make it one and you can only give them the the right motivation um, or make sure that you're working with the right level of stakeholder to to refine the vision revision within the team to to make sure it's a priority of that team so that's one aspect the other aspect is data Um, data is a huge huge tool um, because it takes away from anecdotal reasoning and it also provides com- um, comparable um, analysis and what I mean by that is if for instance you're hi- we were hi- we had a problem hiring um, QAs quality testers in, in most people's businesses um, and the reason was always oh well ThoughtWorks do it very differently to others and we, we look for different types of testers and this, every reason under the sun that was non-metric orientated should we say um, and what we did was we we basically did a full revision of conversion rates between senior developers and senior QAs. And we saw that actually conversion rate between recruiter screen and the candidate moving forward was no higher. It was exactly the same. Recruiters knew what they were looking for. They weren't putting any more through or any less through. They just put the right, the, the, the general conversion rate through. Um, what we were seeing was there was a there was a problem at the technical phone interview, the first phone interview stage. Um, and it was, it was a multiple different challenge it was the fact that interviewers weren't confident because they weren't doing that many interviews over a quick period of 12 to 18 months so they didn't have that calibration in mind as to what good looked like um there's also an element of a really good qa and and thoughtworks has some naturally they're very good at finding holes in things that's the whole point of a qa (laughs) um and surprisingly they were doing that in the interview they were looking they, they weren't identifying potential they weren't looking for opportunities of bringing people in and development they were looking for reasons not to take people forward so there was a recalibration needed with regards to the whole mentality of interviewing and what we were able to do over a period of six every months human was, has a bug yeah exactly exactly humans. <laughs> and it's not and when you think about that it's not surprising it's something we probably should have got ahead of earlier and thinking that actually looking at that so over a period of um i think it was three to six months we recalibrated the role again looked at the attribute model identified what we were looking for we also went into the leadership of the business to identify what is the cost of us not hiring qas here where are the gaps on our client site that have been there for six months what is the revenue that we would have generated if we'd have made a decision like three months ago so all of those things are absolutely critical with regards to helping influence helping redirect the flow of the conversation helping um, really sort of focus the team on, on what their responsibilities are, not only to the recruitment process, but to the business as well. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a great point. I think I think for so many people, the recruiting process, if you're not the recruiter, if you're from outside, it's just opaque. 
And so you're able to kind of interrogate that process and really show, actually, here's what's happening. And then we don't have to go by like rumor and anecdote. Like at this specific stage, we've got a big drop off and that's the problem uh, is much easier way to focus conversation. Yeah. And another, I'll give you another book because I know we're obviously, we've got time constraints, but to a point, but um, another example was uh, we wanted to reduce, not reduce the interview process, but make it more effective. What we were seeing was there when we wanted to change the, the developer process, which was our holy grail of processes, um, we actually modeled out if we wanted to grow in the way that we wanted to grow next year, this is how many interviewers we would need during the current process. And everyone, all, all of the subject matter experts, a lot of them being developers were like, well, I did this process and I don't see a problem with it. I don't know why we need to change it. But when you modeled it out, as I say, to go from hiring 50 to hiring 150, the exponential growth in actual number of touch points as required by thought workers just became unfeasible um, with regards to what was required. So that, again, using that data, using that, working with developers, using analytics is, is, is speaking to them in their own language. They can really start to visualize the problem in a different way. And they're not, it breaks down that emotional attachment to just something being always the same way it's been before. Right. Right. No, and that's, that's a lot of the battle that I think folks are facing. And to your earlier point, the thing that you said that really resonated with me was, um, you know, when you're trying to make the financial case, I think a lot of recruiters are just like caught up in the pain of their current recruiting process. God, if we could do this, it would be better for me. And it's like, well, that's great. That's better for you. But like, how does it relate to the business? And they have trouble making that case. And it's like, no, no, to your point, if you just go to your career site and you see all the open jobs, you view that as like work you're supposed to do. You're supposed to fill those roles. Your CFO looks at those as lost revenue. They're, they're doing the math and saying, geez, I've got 10 sales openings and each of those salespeople on a million dollar quota. And, and you've got 250 selling days a year. That's $4,000 a day. So those 10 roles, that's $40,000 of revenue I lost today because you failed at recruiting. The recruiter's like, I didn't think about it that way. It's like, well, your CFO did. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So yeah. And <laughs> I think the key thing as well is for recruiters not to think that all of their stakeholders are thinking that way either, because what you'll find is if you're coming with to the conversation with that data and that business context and that wider view, the amount of times where you say, if you come to it with that and you go, I'm proposing we do this because of X, Y, Z, this data, that data, this data point, this trend analysis, this this commercial revenue aspect, the likelihood is. If you were to ask them, can you advise why you don't want to go in this direction? They won't have any counter arguments. That's right. They will just be a lot harder than them. (laughs) Oh, yeah, exactly. You're coming prepared. You're coming with the right direction. And it will become quite evident very quickly that there's no, that there's, there's other than anecdotal reasoning and just general human interaction, there won't be a reason for, for not taking the direction that you're approaching. Um, So be prepared. I would ask all of our, any recruiter to do that. The other aspect is as well. I mean, if we were to go to the granular level, and I, I do a lot of it in ThoughtWorks, I tend to be very, I, my, my golden rule is make the simple things as simple as possible. And it's a very, and what I found at ThoughtWorks was the reason that we didn't succeed a lot in our hiring direction, and especially hitting hiring quarters or hiring targets was it, it, the recruiters tended to make things more complex than they were. It was very easy to say it's very hard, 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 it's very hard to hire for ThoughtWorks. The bar's very high. That's the reason we don't hire as many as we probably should. And the reality was that wasn't true. It was because if a recruiter needed 15 pre-screen calls to make a hire, they were probably only doing three a week. And it's like, well, that's why you're not doing it. It's nothing to do with this bar. It's because, number one, 
you could argue that you, maybe you aren't speaking to quality candidates, but you're not speaking to enough candidates in general. And I think that this is the all of our better recruiters now and looking around the world, it's a fundamental KPI that all of our recruiters know exactly what they need to do to make a hire. And if they need to hire two a month or three a month or whatever the numbers are, they know exactly what activity level needs to be. And they are then responsible for managing their channels to just coming in on a Monday and saying, right, I need 15 calls. How many have I got? Right, I need another seven. Where do I get those from? Do I source? Do I get them from the website? Do I get them from refer? Where do I go? Um, but just keeping it really simple and then giving themselves enough capacity and enough brain creative power to be able to spend that on the more sort of value-based stuff. Um, but working about where they're going to make the highest from, that metric should be basic. That should be sort of the core of their delivery and engine. It's interesting. When you say it that way, it sounds very obvious. And yet, I don't think most people do it that way. <laughs> no, they, they don't. They don't. It's, uh, but again, it's, it's the more complex it look, the less people question as to why you're not doing something because they, just, they, they have a preconceived idea of it being very difficult. That's very complex and very hard, and there's all these different factors. It's like, just w- if you work on the data over a period of time, if a recruiter's been there for twelve months, you've got a pretty good idea of what they need to do. Um, and if it is, if and it might be actually to change their conversion rates, maybe they are doing something wrong in the in the process somewhere. Whether it's a pre-screen call or the CV screening, you can always identify opportunities for levers to pull to to create efficiency. All right, I think I have. We could go for a lot longer. But... <laughs> Apparently, the internet can only hold so long of a podcast. So let's finish with our lightning round of a couple fun questions. Wonderful. Let's do it, John. Favorite HR tech tool, other than Greenhouse, of course. Other than Greenhouse. So I'll, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to give you two. Um, we've just installed a new, um, I say just, we've had it for about a year now. It's a data science platform called Sysense. Um And obviously there's a lot of data science platforms out there, um, but this one particularly is very good because as I mentioned earlier, it can distill across different layers of data strata. You can look at the strategic aspect, you can bring in different functions, but they then get right down to the, to the delivery metrics. So um, if I wanted to sit, and I'm not saying I do, but our team might argue, if I wanted to sit like a Bond villain and look around the world as to what deliveries are going well and what, what are not, and I, I needed to jump in, it gives me that level of uh, granular detail. The other one I'm, I was going to mention to cheat was um, we have, and I think I've shown you this, we have built a proprietary dashboard system called Go Hire, uh, which works along very uh, in, in fantastic collaboration with Greenhouse to give recruiters a tactical directional sense as to what they need to do on a day-to-day basis for people out there if you can imagine a trello system or a um, some sort of kanban board with all of the candidates in your pipeline across different stages of the interview process and if you were to click one of those candidate cards it would take you directly into greenhouse it just calculates all of the different metrics from a from a delivery perspective that we need and also from a managerial perspective again i can look across larger geographies to see how everything's going sure yes no i I remember that well. Um, <laughs> tell me, uh, biggest mistake you'll never make again? Um, the biggest, I had to think about this one, actually. Um, and it's quite a personal one, but I think uh, lowering standards to try and please people. I think that I, I've i always said to my team, and, and again, a phrase I always use, is I'm quite demanding, but I'm not unreasonable at all. Um, and what I am demanding of is that you just do the basic things right more often than not. And... Those things are simple. They are stuff that you would do as part of your role. And and no matter what your role is, if you just do the the basic things consistently, you're going to get success. Um, And I think that's that's the one mistake I would never make again, because the moment that you 
lower your standard. I suppose the moment that you allow something to happen, which isn't right, but you know it's not right, that becomes the standard that you set. So I think that you have to maintain a quality that people know that, that that's what you demand, but obviously that they demand that of themselves as well. So I think that's a, um, a mistake I wouldn't make again by lowering the standard to help, just to please people. I like that one. How about biggest mistake you'll definitely make again? ThoughtWorks when I first joined, and, and people will recognize this if they've worked, if they work at ThoughtWorks, but we were very much, we used to say that we were a consensus organization, which meant basically the, the culture of the organization, especially internally, was more consensus non-decision making. Um, and what I mean by that is everyone would have a say and then because everyone had a say there was no agreement made and probably the decision never got made and things would just get bowled along for a period of time so the mistake I made was actually just changing things without asking people now I'm not saying I would and I I probably are cheating a little bit but what I mean is that we actually moved from being a consensus non-decision making business to being a collaborative decision making so yes, we would ask people's opinions, but we would ask the right people who were more involved or invested in the area that we were focused on. But there was an accountability for someone to make that call. Um, and I think that's what a mistake I made. I say a mistake, it was like an intentional mistake, if you will, but it was a case of let's change this and see what happens because we can't keep um, asking everyone's view because we're never going to get the direction that we need to take. So that is now the collaborative decision-making approach is now the default of what we take at talent acquisition. And it's the accountability that's generated from that is something that I think made the difference between our function and maybe some of the other functions that we see. Yeah, we've been talking about that a lot internally. It's being a little bit more intentional about what is our decision-making process or what is the decision-making um, style and making sure everybody understands it. And so you're not all coming from different places. How about um, one piece of advice for anybody who is becoming a head of recruiting for the first time? Maybe they're making that transition from being a individual contributor or practitioner to being a leader yeah um i would say that it i think sometimes when people move from from being as you say individual contributor leader they go they they think they go from playing an instrument to being a um conductor and the 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 trick to being a really good leader i think is to is to know what it takes to deliver on the ground level and I, i don't mean having to do it and having to sit in the weeds all the time but this might go back to understanding the data so I would, I would always suggest to anyone, and I speak to a number of new heads of recruitment quite a lot, and I say, what are your four things that you're focused on? And number, normally they, what they look at are things like, what are your delivery metrics? What does it take to make a hire in your business? Just on a basic level, what does it take? Calls, number of calls, are the people doing that level of activity? Because if that engine isn't working, again, it doesn't matter what strategy you put in place. You have to, um, you have to understand what it looks like. So get that data in place. Um, the second thing I would say would be um, look at things like technology, making sure that all of those things are in place as well to facilitate. So, sorry, John. Boys. <laughs> sorry, we'll have to maybe edit this bit out. Apologies. <laughs> Typically, the ice cream van came down the street just at the wrong time and my wife popped down the garden so the kids come running out. So uh, one piece of advice I'd give heads of recruitment is to really understand the data and the delivery of the business that you're overseeing the talent acquisition for. So not just to become a, a conductor of the orchestra and to to look at strategy with leaders. It's about being able to operationally roll that strategy up to a strategic level and understand what it takes to make a hire, being able to reverse engineer your delivery model. So when a business leader says we need to hire X, Y, Z, you can reverse engineer what that really means from an activity perspective. You can look at the scale, the, the timelines associated with that, and you can 
you can have a, a proper model of, of what's achievable. I think that working in a model where you're just saying yes or you're just saying no without those type of structures in place and that, that type of visibility, it means that you don't get the level of credibility. Again, we talked earlier about people going to conversations without the data or without the business case. More often than not, if you take that type of data to a business leader, they won't have a con contradicting argument. They won't have a, um, well, I think this because of these. It'll be like, oh, right, okay, thanks for bringing that to my attention. I wasn't I wasn't aware of the conversion rates. I wasn't aware that they, a recruiter only has capacity for X number of pre-screen calls a week. Um, so these are the type of things I would, I would get in place because if they know that you're going to come with that, especially in the early days as a new head of recruitment, they're going to respect the fact that you know the insides of your job. And nothing, I suppose, builds credibility that, that, that when people think that you know what you're doing. Um, so those are the people, things in place I would, I would put um, just to start with. And then as you progress, looking at things like rec tech strategy, looking at things like um, your ability to gather data, how is that positioned within your business, candidate experience, all of the, of the normal factors that we would look at. We look at operational excellence, we look at delivery, we look at um, data, and we look at um, how do we build our talent acquisition function um, strategically as well. So the, the ability to grow our recruiters and grow our, our talent acquisition staff as well. That's great. That's great. Yeah, no, knowing your reverse funnel math and the implications of being told hire five people um, is super powerful, right? Um, la last one. Um, it's a recruiter podcast. What's the hire you're most proud of when you think back over your career? Oh, brilliant. Um, actually, it's at ThoughtWorks. And um, as, as well as obviously being head of sourcing, my other role um, on a day-to-day -day basis is head of strategic hiring. So I have a team of uh, people who specialize in our executive hiring or leadership hiring, sales hiring. Um, the stuff that we used to go to agencies for in all intents and purposes, um, to be honest. So that team now specializes in direct sourcing. And um, at the beginning of, I think was the beginning of this year or end of last year, um, Julie, forgive me, I can't remember when you started, but um, in the entire history of ThoughtWorks, we've never hired externally onto our executive board, if you will, the, the global leadership. Everyone has always come into that into our global leadership as um, or the actual the executive board from an in organic growth perspective. Um, the first time we've ever gone external for that, we went um, to the market for a chief marketing officer and um, the team were able to directly source, engage, and hire that role uh, within a 65-day period for an executive-level role. Um, so, yeah, first time ever at ThoughtWorks without an agency and obviously the costs involved with that, but more importantly, the level of credibility that brought us with the, the executive um, committee at ThoughtWorks has been exponential. And we've hired, on the back of that, um, the strategic team have hired more um, roles and hires within that space at ThoughtWorks in the last seven months, eight months during covid than we did in the entirety of the year before. So we're getting more access, more visibility, and more trust from the business by, by making those hires. Hey, if we go to market, we're going to get somebody amazing. We're more likely to go to market. Right? And no one, no one even mentions agencies anymore, which is fantastic. But again, it's moving us from being a value, I suppose when you're looking at it as cost saving, we originally looked at it as cost saving, but it's not now. It's, we don't even mention cost saving because no one goes to agencies. It's about value add. What value can we add by hiring these salespeople and, and the revenue that they generate? And, Great. Well, thank you. That's a great place to end. Thanks again so much for being on the podcast. This is a super interesting conversation. I thank you very much for the opportunity, John. Really appreciate it. And, and again, thanks very much for the partnership with Greenhouse so far. It's been amazing. I know we've been partners for a long time now. Thanks for listening to Hiring Maturity Success Stories on the Greenhouse Podcast 
hiring for what's next. Wondering how to start optimizing your own company's hiring? Take the Greenhouse Hiring Maturity Assessment now at greenhouse.io HMA. Don't miss a moment of hiring for what's next. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts for the latest episodes.